Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it, is, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, dear God, as we come to this passage, as we come from the sacrifices, as we come from the holy and the unholy and the, the laws about what can be eaten, and as we come to this passage that reminds us why it was all necessary and why your mercy is greater than we can understand. May we understand the greatness of sin. May we understand the mercy of God. And may we understand your vast holiness, dear Lord. The blood of animals could not deal with sin. Only your son's blood. May you make us your people. May we be holy. What it means to be holy and unholy. And then we'll go back to Leviticus after we finish Hebrews chapter 10. We'll hear a lot more laws about cleanliness and being unclean and leprosy and issues from men and women. But this passage is what gives us the right lens by which we can interpret those passages. Because without understanding this, we will not be able to rightly understand those passages. All those passages about clean and unclean, all those passages about that if you have leprosy in your house that you have to dig out the wall and if if it comes back you have to tear it down so there's not one stone upon another. That is all a shadow of sin. A shadow of what was needed to deal with sin. They're all shadows of things to come. Those pictures as we studied about animals that if, they're, if they don't chew the cud, if they're beasts of the field and they don't chew the cud, if they don't have a cloven hoof that they're unclean, that's a shadow of the things to come. If they crawl on the earth, they're unclean. That's a shadow of the things to come. If they don't have fins and scales, they're unclean and that's a shadow of the things to come. All these things are just shadows of spiritual realities that have now been revealed, have now been made plain. And so when we look at those Old Testament laws, we should understand the Israelites could not understand them because they were shadows. And it's only when you see the thing that's casting the shadow can you rightly understand the shadow or what understand why the shadow looks the way it does. You cannot understand the shadow without seeing the very thing that is casting the shadow. So that's important for us to recognize. It's important for us to recognize we have a far greater duty to be able to understand why animals are unclean that don't chew the cud and why they're unclean if they don't have a cloven hoof than the Israelites ever did. We actually have the thing that casts the shadow. So we're supposed to look at it and go, Why do animals that don't have fins and don't have scales, why are they an abomination to eat? 
Why are they evil to eat in ceremonial law? Because it's a shadow. It's a shadow of what's required. But now that we have the substance, the thing that casts the shadow, we can understand it. So as we come back to Hebrews, the writer has been saying in chapter 10 and 8, or excuse me, 8 and 9, that the writer's been saying why the new covenant is a better covenant. Christ is a better high priest than Aaron was. The tabernacle's a better tabernacle, not one made with gold and silver and acacia wood like we studied in Exodus, but one made without hands, a heavenly tabernacle. The one that Christ was able to ascend to the Father and enter into the holy of holies, the true holy of holies, the holy of holies that was not made by the hands and the strength and the craftsmen of men, but the one that Christ made. So he became the sacrifice that so many of the Old Testament laws were a shadow of. But now that we can understand them because he is the substance, he is the one that is casting that shadow. So as we go through this chapter of Hebrews, may it help us get a better understanding of how we are to interpret those laws. Because we are going to go back, if the Lord wills, and look at leprosy and all these other things. All the other ways that one can be made unclean before we deal with the Day of Atonement. And I think that's what's really pointed to by chapter 9 and continuing into chapter 10 is the Day of Atonement. It's talking about that day once a year when the high priest, after making the specific sacrifices, that he had to sacrifice a bullock so that he could go into the Holy of Holies. He had to sacrifice it for himself and for his household. And then he had to take two goats and he had to, to make one a scapegoat and release it in the wilderness. And then the other he was to offer as a sin offering for the people. And all this so that he could put up a veil of incense so that he was hidden from the mercy seat. So that he could go into the presence of God briefly. As long as the cloud of incense was there so he couldn't see the mercy seat. Because if he saw God, the presence of God he would die. And he's been talking about how different that day is than the day of the ascension of Christ. Christ doesn't need incense to be in the presence of the Father. Christ doesn't need to make any sacrifices. And Christ definitely doesn't need to make the sacrifice again. It was done once and it's complete. He went into the presence of his Father. And he'll only return once to judge the living and the dead. He came to put away sin, something that the offerings of the Levitical priests could never do. They never had the possibility. They never had, it was impossible for their offerings to ever deal with sin. But Christ came so that sin could actually be dealt with. God gave us all those shadows that we could understand once we have the substance, what those things are pointing to. Let's go on to verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So it starts with saying for the law. When we think of the law, it's important for us to understand what part of the law he's speaking of. He's speaking to the same part of the law that he was speaking of in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. 
But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerning only those foods and drink, only with foods and drink, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So when he says here for the law, he's talking about those laws, those laws that are the fleshly ordinances that were imposed until the time of Reformation. He's speaking here of the law that, that changes with the new covenant, the changes because the time of Reformation has come, that, that the baptism changed and the food changes, the Lord's Supper is very different than not eating clean and unclean animals, the baptisms change, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with water is very different than the baptism of the priest and the baptism of the hands and feet that, that they had to do every time that they went in to minister in the tabernacle. So he's talking about those things, not the moral law. The moral law was not a shadow. It's important for us to understand that. The law was not a picture of how you love your neighbor. It was commandments how to love your neighbor, as it says in Romans 13, 9 through 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The moral law given in the Old Old Testament, given by Moses, that was not a shadow. It's not a shadow, do not murder. That is how you love your neighbor. So there's a big difference between those that are a shadow, like the clean and unclean animals, versus do not murder. And so we need to make sure that we understand the difference. The shadows, they all change with the coming of Christ, because now we have the image that is casting the shadow. But do not murder, we don't have an image. That's that's how you love your neighbor. Do not commit adultery, that's how you love your neighbor. Do not fornicate all the commandments in Scripture They're not shadows, they're substance of what you're supposed to do to walk in righteousness versus the moral law, which is a picture that's pointing to what was needed that was greater, greater than anything that was in the Old Testament law because we couldn't keep the moral law. So God gave us a ceremonial law. God gave us these types and shadows to point to things so that we could understand what was required to come to Christ, to come to God. So these are the laws, as it says in Ephesians 2, that forced the separation between the Israelites and the Gentiles to create a people that were separated unto God, a holy people that were holy because God was holy, as we just ended in in Leviticus 11 that we just read from this morning. Be holy, for I am holy. They were told to do this by by not eating animals that didn't chew the cud, beasts of the field that didn't chew the cud. But we now know what that means. We now have the substance that casts that shadow. They were a holy people. They were just had a shadow of holiness. 
we're supposed to have a substance of holiness. And so those things that were shadows, they get reformed into a different shape. Because now it's not about separating the Israelites and the Jews from the Gentiles. It's about separating the people of God from those who are not the people of God. So the law having a shadow, these laws have a shadow. That's a really useful metaphor. And obviously God chose it, so we know that it was useful, so that's kind of somewhat redundant. But when we think of shadows, if you see the shadow of something, you really don't know what that thing looks like. You have some ideas of what it looks like, but you don't know what it looks like. And think about how different shadows look depending on the angle from which the light is displayed. You know, think of a statue of a horse with a rider on it. If the light is directly vertical, it's this like oval with a point thing at the front. If it's from the side and you have a wall there, it looks like a horse with a rider on it. If you have it from from the back angle, it looks like something with two ears pointing out maybe. Each one of them looks like completely different. And you can't sit there without knowing the stature of the horse and go, these are all statues, you know, these are all shadows of that statue. It's only once you know the statue that you can say, oh, these are all shadows of the same thing. And the shadows look very different. That's important to think about that because he's using that as a picture because you look at the scapegoat that they had to do to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. And you look at, you look at that you can't eat seafood that doesn't have fins and scales. And those two don't seem to be related at all until you understand the thing that's casting the shadow, and then they become related, just like shadows can look very, very different depending on the angle that the light is coming from. And so God gives us all these shadows that are different angles. They're all pictures of Christ. They're all declaring who Christ is. But you look at them and you go, you know, leprosy and, and having to do a burnt offering, what do those have to do with each other? It's because of the thing that's casting the shadow that we can understand. So in the Old Covenant, they would look at those things and they try to, they see all these different shadows and they go, what are these things? How are they related? And they just went, well, there's a list of things that make us clean. But then they go, but it doesn't make us clean. We have to keep doing them. But in the New Covenant, we're supposed to look and say, we see how that thing is a shadow of the very image that we're supposed to be able to connect those together because now we know what's casting the shadow. The shadow is cast because of Christ's sacrifice. So when we think about the burnt offering and the sin offering and the peace offering and the grain offering, the trespass offering, all these look very different. But they're all cast by the same thing. They're all just from a different angle of light shining on Christ that is putting out a shadow. And the shadows look different, but they're all pointing to the same thing. So even when we consider all these differences, the laws related to unclean and clean animals, the woman having to be purified after childbirth, dealing with leprosy, they can seem to be very different, but they're all casting a shadow. They're all just a shadow that's cast by the same thing. They're all just a shadow of what was required for salvation, 
of the work that Christ was going to do. All those ceremonial laws, they're shadows of the good things. And understand, the shadows aren't necessarily good. They're shadows of the good thing. They're shadows of what Christ came to do. You know, as Peter said in describing them, during the discussion with Paul and Barnabas, when Paul and Barnabas came down from, from Antioch, and they're debating whether the Gentiles should be required to keep the ceremonial laws, in Acts 15, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The ceremonial law, it was something you had to bear. And yes, if you saw it right, if you could have faith to see, you could, it was still a blessing. I'm not saying it was a curse. It was a blessing to go up three weeks a year up to Jerusalem. But for those who didn't have faith, it was a curse. It was a burden. It was a burden that the, the, every animal that opened the womb, you had to sacrifice to God. It was a burden that you had to take these animals that, that would be your food, and you just had to take them outside the camp and burn them as a sin offering so that they were no more. When you would like to eat them, when you might be going hungry, these things weren't necessarily, oh, we should rejoice, we should be glad that these things are gone. They were a burden. The Messianic Jews and these groups that want to go back to the Old Covenant, what's wrong with them? They've rejected Christ is what's wrong with them. They've rejected the very image and they want the shadow. We should look at the shadows and we should be fascinated at the things that are shown by the shadows and how God foreshadowed all these things so that they could be understood. But who wants the shadow of a statue when they can have the real statue, when they can have the very image of the thing? We should never want to go back to the shadows. The shadows can teach, but the image is what actually makes us be able to understand those shadows. You know, like even the shadow of the showbread, it was a shadow of a good thing to come. Christ is the showbread. When David was hungry and he saw the burden of not being able to eat the showbread, unless you were pre, it was a burden to him, so he ate it. The showbread is a shadow of Christ. It was a burden, but Christ himself, he's the very substance. He's not a burden. He's a good thing. Even if the shadow created, created work for the Israelites, created things that they had to do, things that they constantly... I mean, look at the laws of being unclean. They were constantly unclean. They constantly needed to be bathed. They constantly were unclean till evening. And it's all a picture of a good thing, of how Christ actually cleansed. It's a picture of the good things to come. They were shadows of good things. They could not understand the shadows very well. Some understood they were shadows like Malachi when he says in Mal- or excuse me, Micah when he says in Micah 6, 6 through 8, what, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, like to do just, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. 
And so they understood it was a shadow. The faithful prophets of the Old Testament understood it was a shadow. David understood it was a shadow. But that doesn't mean that they could understand the thing that was casting the shadow. They were still trying to look at that. They were still trying to understand that. It wasn't revealed to them, but it has been revealed to us. They had the shadow and not the very image. So this is the contrast that the writer is drawing. The information they had in the Old Covenant was like a shadow compared to the very image that we have in the New Covenant. And that word image here is the Greek word icon. So all they had, all we... So we have before us the icon. And it's important to understand that. Christ was the substance, but Christ isn't being crucified in front of us. So what we have is the icon. We preach Christ crucified. We don't have the substance. We have the very image. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The church has been given the very image of it. And yes, Christ died and he's risen and he's... All that was in substance. He all fulfilled all these Old Testament passages. But in the New Covenant, his people preach the image. We preach what happened. We don't re-crucify Christ. We don't We don't have the substance again. So what we have before us is the icon. He doesn't keep getting crucified. He doesn't keep healing. He doesn't keep ascending to heaven. Instead, we have the descriptions of what he did. What he did was the substance referenced in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 17. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, so that one no, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Christ was the substance. What we preach now is the very image of that substance. We preach what Christ did. We don't have Christ being re-crucified. He made us alive through that sacrifice, but now we have the Gospels that describe these things to us. And we know that they're not the full substance, that they're just, they're just an icon. They're just an image. John 21, 24, and 25. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and who wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are many, also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. There's what Christ did and the fullness of it. What we've been given is just an image of that. The fullness of it is is so much that the world couldn't contain it. But we're given the pieces that we need to see so that we can understand what was required to be saved, what was required to be reconciled to the Father. The Gospels are like a statue compared to the real person. We only have a fraction of the understanding of the fullness of Christ. But where we have the very image in the Old Covenant, all they had was a shadow. The idea of an icon is used when Christ asks whose picture was on the money. Obviously, 
That was a two-dimensional picture of Caesar. It was not Caesar himself. But he says that's the icon of Caesar that's on there. That's the very image of Caesar on that coin. But that word's also used in relationship to man, that man's made in the image of God. We are not God. We will never be God. We are always a subset of God. We bear his image, but we're not him. We don't have the substance of being God. We just have the image of being God. And this is what God promises of us, is that that those who he began a good work, he will bring it to completion. He will conform us not to be his son, but he will conform us to be the image of his son. The same word that's used here. God will make us holy like his son. But we won't have the power of Christ. We won't become God. We'll just become perfectly conformed to his image after glorification. It will still be the difference between a statue and the real thing. Christ is the real thing. That's the very image of the things. We have the very image of those things. Consider how different the images are in the Old Testament than they were in the, or, and the, how different they are in the New Covenant than they were in the Old Covenant. Even think of the Sabbath day. In the Old Covenant, they knew that God had hallowed it. They knew that they should keep it. They knew that it was a means to make them holy, but they didn't understand that Christ was their rest. And the Sabbath is a picture of all, all of eternity, where we have our eternal rest in Christ. The delivery from Egypt was another shadow of the same thing. But the seventh day was that rest from the slavery of sin. But now we can look at it and we understand that, yes, we keep the Sabbath, we keep the Sabbath, but we know the substance of what it's pointing to, the eternal rest that we have in Christ. Or think of baptism. They understood that it was a picture of needing to be cleansed from sin. That's why John had the baptism of repentance. They didn't recognize the picture of death, burial, and resurrection. That explains about the various other baptisms that are not about preparing to be clean until the evening. That's a good picture of the baptism of repentance. But they didn't recognize that we'd get baptized by the Holy Spirit or it. The images are far different than the shadows. But now we can look at the shadows and understand them because we know the image that casts those shadows, that cause those shadows to look like they do. Think of the Lord's Supper. It's not to kill an animal, to burn its entrails on the altar, burn offering, and then carry the bull outside the camp to be burned. Here we just take bread and go... This is the bread, the body of Christ which is broken for you so that we know the image and so the, the shadow, the, the images that we use to relay those things are so different. The bread, the body of Christ, the blood, the blood of the new covenant that was shed for you. The image is substantially different than the shadow. Think about how much more knowledge and understanding we have with the Lord's Supper than they understood about the Day of Atonement. Because in the Old Covenant, all they got was the shadow. But we have the very image. But those, those shadows that they had could never, they could never 
take away sin. It's important for us to recognize that the image can't take away sin either. Participating in the the Lord's Supper does not take away your sin. Being baptized does not take away your sin. Keeping the Sabbath does not take away your sin. The very image which has been given to the church, that doesn't take away sin. It is Christ. It is the substance that takes away sin. And we're supposed to realize how ridiculous that is, but recognize also that they thought where we should know that the very image can do that. You are saved by faith and faith alone. But they thought even the shadows, they didn't have the image, and they thought the shadow could do it. That the shadow could save. Never with those same sacrifices. They would recast the shadow every time they came up for a feast. Every day when the priest would make the morning and evening sacrifice. Every time that they would eat of a sacrifice, the sacrifice of the animal that opened the womb. Every time they did that, they were to recognize this couldn't solve the problem. Because they just had to keep repeating it. It was obvious that it was not the substance the same sacrifices are they, that, that, which they offer continually. They had to keep offering the shadows. But they couldn't understand what was meant by the shadow. For most, it was because in their sin they refused to see that it was just a shadow. But even for the faithful, even the faithful, they were unable to understand all that Christ could do. They understood that, that yes, they needed a Savior. They understood they couldn't do it by their works, by their own strength that they could never be made right with God because you make a sacrifice and the next thing you know, you're going to be unclean again. And then you wash your clothes and guess what? You're unclean again. A mouse comes and dies and you hit the body and all of a sudden you're unclean. All these things that constantly made them unclean, they had to know. I mean, the, the faithful understood that that those sacrifices and those washings, those baptisms, they weren't sufficient. But that didn't mean that they could understand the very image. We've been given the very image. We have far more culpability, far more responsibility, because we've been given far more than they have received. But they were to understand that they offered continually year by year Many of the sacrifices they could have ignored. They could have pretended that this is what God required. But the Day of Atonement, it was crystal clear. The Day of Atonement, the priest had to sacrifice a bull as a sin offering for, his, for himself and for his house in order to go into the Holy of Holies. All those other sacrifices, the firstborn of their animals, they could have said, oh, God just wanted that. We just have to appease the wrath of God. But the Day of Atonement, God was very explicit. This is what's required for your sins to be forgiven. That's why one of the reasons why, even though it's in the context, that I think the focus of this passage is on the Day of Atonement. Because on the Day of Atonement, they were to afflict their souls. They were to see themselves as sinners. They were to see, they were to recognize that all of Israel had sin that had to be forgiven, that sacrifices had to be made for their sin. 
And so if no place else, the Day of Atonement, year by year, they testified that it didn't remove sin because the next year they had to go back. And even though they were atoned for, the next year they had to go back and make the same sacrifices and to be atoned for again. It obviously did not remove their sin. It did not make those who approach perfect. It didn't make Israel perfect or they would never have had to sacrifice again. It didn't even make the high priest perfect because the next year he had to go and he had to make the same sacrifice. He had to kill another bull to to be able to enter in. It couldn't even make the high priest perfect. The one who actually did the work of the sacrifices. The one who actually entered into the Holy of Holies. He had to rush out again before he died. Leviticus 16, 12 through 13 Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. But the law was explicit. The high priest made these sacrifices. He did the sin offering. He did all this. But he was a sinner that could not see God, even immediately after doing it. They were to understand that those sacrifices could never make one able to approach God. God ordered the sacrifices so that no one would be deceived that those sacrifices were insufficient. Those sacrifices were not able to make those who approach perfect. The mercy stood still needed to be veiled by incense when he went in there. Christ did not need to veil his presence when he approaches the Father. Read, read Daniel 7. He boldly comes to the Ancient of Days. He didn't need incense. He didn't need something burning. Because what he did worked. What he did satisfied. What he did, as we describe it as the very image because it was the substance of what was required. Verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. For then. So it's really important to recognize that Christianity is logical and reasonable. God is a God of logic. He is a God of order. He established these things. And we are supposed to reason from what we know to come to conclusions. So the writer of Hebrews is making the argument, look, if the sacrifices took away sin, then the sacrifices stop. If they had the ability to make the person who approaches perfectly, and that word perfect means to be complete, so the argument doesn't even need to mean that they're without fault, but that they're, they're not lacking anything. And so the argument is, For then, if they could make you perfect when you approached, they would have been stopped. They would, would they not have ceased? Why would they keep killing animals? Making sacrifice to an animal who took so much effort to raise. And like in the case of a bullock, it had all this future potential and you had to go slit its throat and drain out its blood and anoint the horns of the altar with its blood. Why would they keep doing that? Why would they spend so much time, so much effort, and then kill that animal 
burn it up completely so they don't even get a meal out of it unless you recognize you're lacking something. After Christ comes, there's no sense the people still think they need to make a blood sacrifice. The idea of, I was saved by the blood of Christ, so now let me go kill a bull. That makes no sense. We don't think that way. It doesn't cross our mind. And that's, that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. If they thought that it actually made them perfect, they would have the same response that we have. When we believe and trust that Jesus Christ's blood was shed for us, we don't go, I need to keep killing animals. Let me go find a goat to slit its throat. And he's saying, they should have known this. They should have seen this. They should have understand that. And the faithful did. If the old, in the Old Testament they understood, they, those who were faithful had to understand it was just a shadow. That's why they keep, they keep slitting the throats of animals. Because they needed a Messiah. They needed a sacrifice that was actually acceptable to God. They needed the sinless lamb. Those who were faithful, in the case of the prophets, their message was much more, God didn't want the shedding of blood. He didn't want the blood of bulls and goats. What, do you think, the, like Micah, you think the blood of bulls and goats? I could put, kill 10,000 rams, and why would that make me righteous? But that doesn't mean that they could understand the sacrifice of Christ. What it meant is that they saw the futility of the sacrifices that they were given, that they were just shadows pointing to something more. So why would they not have ceased to be offered? Because it never ceased. They had to make a burnt offering in the morning. They had to turn around and do it again in the evening. There was no end to the offerings. There was no end to the shedding of the blood God made it crystal clear this did not work. It's just a shadow of the real blood that needed to be shed, the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says, for the worshipers, the word here is latruo, which is not a proskuneo. Proskuneo is more to fall down, to prostrate yourself. And that's the word that I think is more frequently translated worship in the New Testament. Latruo that means more to serve. Like in the discussion between Satan and Christ when he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 9, and 10. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That was proskuo, proskuneo, excuse me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Shall you la truo. truo. The, di- the idea here is that they're, that they're offering real service to God. He commanded them to offer animals. The person bringing the animal, he's serving God, he's doing what he was told, but he's only fulfilling the shadows. So the worshipers, those who came and served God, the servants might be better translated. Once purified, once they're made clean, and they brought that lamb in for the sin offering, for instance, if it worked to cleanse them of their sin, then they would never have to offer it again. But the high priest, year after year, had to make another offering for the sins of the people. Because it was only a shadow of the true purification that happens through the blood of Christ. So the, fir- the worshipers, once purified, 
where they have no more offered. They would have no more consciousness of sins. If they were truly cleansed of their sins, they would not have the same awareness of sin. They would, have, they would no longer have the same futility towards sin. In the Old Covenant, after they made a sacrifice of the animal, in no way did it give them power to overcome sin. They still had the same sin. Their conscience was still in rebellion to God. It didn't do anything. And the writer's been contrasting the New Covenant with the Old Covenant. And he's contrasting it, saying, right, that, that all those things that they did, they, they, Hebrews 9.9, 9, that they, were, they didn't make, that service did not make them perfect in regard to the conscience. It could not free your conscience. All you ended up with was a continued sense of your guilt, a continued sense that, that you weren't right with God. Could not make the conscience clean. It was just an external cleanliness. You go and wash your clothes and you're unclean until evening, and it did nothing for your sin. Then contrast that with the salvation of Christ. For example, in the requirements of a deacon, 1 Timothy 3 8 and 9. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Paul, in writing to to Timothy, is saying, find men with a pure conscience. The old covenant could never produce that. The new covenant produces that in those who are mature. They have a conscience that they're purifying. They have a conscience that they can look and they can examine themselves and they can say, I don't have any sin that I know of. But in the old covenant, none of those sacrifices could do that. Because it's only by faith that we can have power over our sin. In Christ, a purified conscience is not just a possibility, but it's what every Christian is to be working toward. Not absent from the work of the Spirit, but because we should expect that the Spirit will produce in us a pure conscience. That is what the finished work of Christ is. We get conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and Christ had a pure conscience. We should be expecting that. That's what Christ does for those who are his. Their conscience, through all those sacrifices, was never purified. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God breaks the bondage of sin so that our consciences can be purified. Verses 3 through 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin. It's every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So, but in those sacrifices, they were commanded to keep doing the sacrifices. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, every period of the calendar, they had to do sacrifices related to the period of the calendar. They had all these sacrifices that they constantly had to do Because God wanted them to see. He set them there as a reminder. It was a reminder that these sacrifices were not sufficient. It left them still bound in their sin. But instead of seeing that it could not not free them from their sin because they kept having to do it, even after the prophets warned them repeatedly, that this was the case, that the blood of bulls and goats is not what God wanted. 
want of justice, the love of mercy, walking humbly before God. But instead of seeing that even as the prophets warned them, even as God told them in Malachi, who will come? Who will come and shut down this altar? They still said, we're making these sacrifices. God has to be pleased with us. They insisted that their sacrifices made them the true people of God to the point that they would kill the Christ during the Passover. They had such a level of confidence in their sacrifices of a lamb that they would hurry to kill Christ so they could be clean for the Sabbath day, the Sabbath that followed the Passover. They were so confident that their sacrifices caused the judgment of God to pass over them that they murdered Jesus Christ. They killed the only begotten of the Father. Instead of it being a reminder of sins, it gave them the ability to ignore their sin. It was to be a reminder of sins. Every offering they did, every time they anointed the the altar burnt offering with blood, every time they poured out blood at the base of the altar, every time they poured it out in a circle around the altar, every time it was to be a reminder of sin, and especially on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went in and he had to have a veil of incense so he didn't actually see God. Every year on the 10th day of the 7th month, they would afflict their souls. They would fast to remember the seriousness of sin The high priest would offer a bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering for his sins and his house's sins to be forgiven. Then he would take two goats. One would be the scapegoat that would be sent into the wilderness. The other goat would be killed as a sin offering for the people. Every year they would do this for atonement for sin. And then the next year they would need to do it again because it didn't fix them. It only allowed God's presence to be among them in the tabernacle. It was only a shadow of what was needed to fully come into the presence of the living God. For it is not possible. That idea of not being possible, it's, it's dunamis, it's adunamis, without any ability, without any strength, without any, any power to do anything. The blood of bulls and goats did not have the power. It was not possible that it could cleanse anybody of sin. Regardless of how many millions of animals they had to slaughter, they probably slaughtered over those 1,400 years 5 million animals or a lot more. Each family would bring up a lamb at the Passover each year and they knew they would just have to turn around and do it again the next year. There's a river of blood of bulls and goats. It just meant that more would have to be shed because it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. All that blood, it didn't have the power to take away any sin. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, only the sinless Lamb of God, could take away the sins of those who believe and the sins of the world. The rest are just shadows in anticipation of the real, of the reality of the very image that has been handed down to us. So let me give you some applications. First application, we should understand that the shadow is easy to understand when you have the image. 
And when we don't understand it, that should be a challenge to us to say we don't understand the image very well. With just the shadow, it can be really hard to understand the thing that casts the shadow. There's lots of things that cast shadows that look the same. And so that's, that's not enough. They had the shadows, and if they were faithful, they knew they were shadows, but it was difficult for them to understand the very image when all they had was shadows. But we have the very image. And if you have the very image, you should be able to look at the shadow. And I know it's hard. We've been going through Leviticus. It can be hard to look and say, so what, what in the world is this shadow of having no fins and no scales? But we shouldn't look at it and go, we can't understand it. We should look at it and say, we have the very image. We're supposed to be able to say, this is why the shadow looks like that. If you have the statue of a horse and you see a shadow, you go, oh, the sun must have been here. That's why that casts that shadow. And we're supposed to, with the image, be able to understand the shadow. So as we continue to wrestle with those shadows, it's important for us to recognize that if we can't understand the shadow, it's because we don't understand the fullness of the very image. Because if we understood the very image correctly, we would understand how the shadow is a picture of that very image. It should be important to us to understand them. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have become reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. The prophets of the Old Testament desired to understand these. The angels desired to understand these. We should have a desire to understand. Because when we understand the shadow, we have a better understanding of the very image that casts that shadow. And it takes works, work. But it's what the prophets wanted that were before us. It's what the angels wanted. It's what we should want to do the work to understand the pictures, to understand how the sacrifice of Christ cast that image, that shadow. Another application, understand how much greater duty we have because we can understand these things. As Christ said in Luke seven twenty-eight, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Because John the Baptist was the last one that just had the shadow. Now with Pentecost, with the pouring out of the the Spirit so that all the sons and daughters of God become prophets. All of us are able to understand the character and nature of God. All of us are able to declare, if we truly believe, able to declare who Christ is. Because we have the very image We know more than John the Baptist. We're greater prophets than he is. And having greater understanding, obviously, that understanding, that wisdom that God has given us through the death of his son and through the giving of the Holy Spirit, that's supposed to produce in us a greater zeal to do God's will, a greater passion to serve God than the prophets of the Old Testament had. They were looking at a shadow and saying, we should serve God. They were looking at a shadow. Read 
Read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, read the sufferings that they went to, went through as prophets. And understand, we've been given more than any of them. Any of them. So how much greater responsibility do we have? To have a greater zeal than Ezekiel did. To have a greater zeal than Jeremiah where he spoke truth even when it caused him to end up being at the bottom of a well. We have the very image. How much greater responsibility do we have? We no longer need to be trying to figure out what would cast that shadow. We now know what casts the shadow. So we have a greater image. As we read this morning, as we went through Leviticus 11, where God said, be holy for I am holy. Understand we have a far greater responsibility to be holy because God is holy than anybody in the Old Covenant that just read Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Their understanding of holiness was based on shadows. Ours is based on the very image. Another application, we should look forward to heaven. Because in heaven we will no longer have the very image, as wonderful as that is, but we will have the real, complete, the full presence of God We will know in full. We will not just have an image. We will have the substance. And how much greater that will be than just having the image. Another application. Christ's sacrifice, which is the substance, is not a shadow. It does have the power to make those who approach perfect. All those who have put their faith and trust in Christ will be made perfect. Yes, it won't be complete until glorification. When Christ returns for those who are alive in him, but all will be made perfect. All will have all of their sin removed, all of their corruption removed. And we will be able to enter into the presence of God. But for assurance before that, all that are his... Not that our works make us right with God or can somehow earn points for salvation, but all that are His, He is conforming into the image of His Son and to be conformed into the image of His Son. The main thing that that means is that you are putting away sin. That's the main thing that that means. The main characteristic of God is He is holy. The main thing that it means to be conformed to the image of God is you are being made holy. There's no service that can make one perfect, but we are to serve God because he is making us perfect. And while it's not a means to that perfection, that's what those who are servants of God, that's what they do. Those who are worshipers of God, that's what they do. They serve the living God. It doesn't mean that that... Serving God is a means to become part of the new covenant, but it means that those who are part of the new covenant are made servants of God. Because Christ came and took on the form of a bondservant. And when we're being conformed, which he promises, conformed to the image of God, he makes each one of those who believe, each one of us who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes us servants. So related to that, are you keeping your conscience pure? 
1 Timothy 1, 5 through 8 says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The purpose of the commandment is love from a good conscience. We need to be keeping our conscience pure. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not like the sacrifice of the bulls and goats that did nothing for the conscience. Jesus Christ's sacrifice allows us to approach God with a pure conscience. All of God's commandments about how to live, they're all about how to have a pure conscience. How to do the right thing. How to, to, to live how God would have us to live. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we can actually love with a pure conscience. Are you keeping your conscience pure? Are you striving to have a pure conscience? Are you, are you working at it? We are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If you just go, oh, I'm saved, but I know of all these sins I have, that should cause you to be filled with terror. Because it says in 1 John 3, don't be deceived. Those who practice righteousness are righteous, and those who do not practice righteousness are not righteous. Their father is the devil. Those who are saved work to purify their conscience. Are you dealing with the sin in your life? Are you willing to see the sin in your life and turn from it? Are you just embracing the sin in your life? Because Jesus Christ came to purify the conscience. Because only those with a pure conscience can approach the Father. And he came, he came to bring a people into the presence of the Father. In the last application, God gives us a different reminder of the seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin that they, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they poured out this blood around the altar burnt offering. This picture of eternal damnation, this picture of hell where, where the fire was never to go out, where there was always supposed to be meat on it that was burning so that people could understand what hell was, what it was, what, what was coming. It was a shadow of hell. But God gives us a very different reminder now that we have the very substance, the very image. Instead of that, we take a piece of bread and we break the bread as a weekly reminder of the seriousness with which Christ takes sin, which God takes sin. So it's not like there's not a reminder in the New Covenant. Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to remember this is the cost of sin. Jesus Christ took on flesh, and his flesh was broken. This is the cost of sin, that Jesus Christ took on a body so that he would have blood, so that the blood could be poured out. Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, we should be reminded, just like every time that they sacrificed an animal, they were supposed to be reminded of the seriousness of sin. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we need to be reminded of the seriousness of sin. Christ died to deal with sin. Christ died to deal with sin. 
He did not die so that he could just close his eyes to sin and say, you're forgiven in Christ. Christ died to destroy the works of the devil, which is sin. And he is effectual. He is effectual, not like those sacrifices that they did before, not like the sacrifice that they made for the Day of Atonement where they still had to, to create a billow of incense so that they didn't die. No, Christ was effectual. That he can actually clear the conscience of sin. So don't, think, don't deceive yourself. If you think lightly of sin, if you think it's no big deal, and you take the Lord's Supper, it's no different than the Israelites who brought their lambs and their bullocks the first year, that they came to Passover and they brought their lambs. They, they sacrificed them and they had a party and they walked away and no different. If you do that with the Lord's Supper, don't think you're any different than the Israelites if you're not cleansing your conscience of sin. But don't think it's the same either. Because they didn't trample the blood of bulls, and, or they, they just trampled the blood of bulls and goats underfoot. And somebody takes the Lord's Supper without, without being concerned about the sin in their life. They're trampling the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. The level of seriousness is completely different. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. It's so much more worse to take the Lord's Supper because we have the very image. It's so much worse to take the Lord's Supper and not think of sin seriously. His body was broken for sin. His blood was shed because of sin. Those who take the Lord's Supper lightly, they have a lot more knowledge than they did in the Old Covenant. And they'll be held accountable to that knowledge because the level of judgment is dependent upon knowledge. We have a reminder of the seriousness of sin. Let's make sure we take sin seriously. Let me close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. You don't leave us blind. You don't leave us with just dark shadows like the Israelites had. Instead, you have given us the light of your Son. You have given us the light of your word so that we can see truth and we can understand truth and we can see the seriousness with which you deal with sin. For you are a God who came to deal with sin. Lord, let us humbly come before you and let us desire to turn from our sin and walk in righteousness so that we are truly your body because your body was without sin and you are cleansing your body. You are washing her in the water of the word so that we will be holy. Give us a greater desire, a greater zeal for holiness. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.